How do you fix the absolute worst entry in a franchise? Today we are tackling Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Can we fix it? Yes, we can. Ladies and gentlemen, nerds, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us this week as we complete the circle and try to fix the final movie in the Star Wars sequel trilogy, The Rise of Skywalker. This movie is a mess, ladies and gentle people, and we have our work cut out for us. But before Chris and I dive right in, it's time for some good old-fashioned... That's right, nerd news. Chris, what is new in the world of nerddom? So the inaugural WitcherCon took place on Friday, July the 9th on the YouTube and Twitch channels of both Netflix and CD Projekt Red. Fans of the multi-platform property were treated to behind-the-scenes looks, incredible music from the house band. I'm telling you, it was amazing. Uh, an in-depth look at the universe's original card game of Gwent. A look back at the history of the games' development uh, and the much-anticipated teases of new content that is coming soon. Among the reveals and teases that were shared, here are a few highlights. The Last Wish, the first book in the series, will be receiving a hardcover uh, illustrated version set to release in December, much like the Harry Potter franchise has. Dark Horse Comics will be releasing a Netflix-inspired Geralt of Rivia figure that will also release in December. Uh, Rafal Jockey is making their writing debut in The Witcher Ronin, an anime, or excuse me, a manga set in the Witcher universe and heavily inspired by ancient Japan. A next gen version of The Witcher 3 The Wild Hunt, a previous nerd commendation, will be arriving soon on PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series S and X with additional Netflix inspired downloadable content. A teaser trailer and promotional poster for The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf, was released. This anime, covering the story of Geralt's mentor, uh, Vesemir, will arrive on Netflix August the 23rd. If the month of December seems a tad repetitive, there's a reason. That's because Season 2 of The Witcher comes to Netflix December 17th. A full trailer and promotional poster for the second season was revealed, detailing the training of Ciri, or Cirilla, the lion cub of Sintra, and her relationship as it grows with Geralt. Uh, there was also a cryptic tease towards the end of that footage about what exactly is going on with Yennefer. Uh, needless, to t needless to say, I'm psyched out of my, mi uh, my mind for all this glorious content coming in the very near future. What say you, Dave? So, you know, <laughs> I'm a little weird here. Uh, so as far as Witcher content goes, my uh, order of preference might be a little different than most uh, Witcher fans. First and foremost to me is, of course, the excellent uh, book series. Right after that, the Netflix series. And pretty much in last place 
is the video game. Now, don't get me wrong. I think the video games are very good, and CD Projekt Red has done a great job with those. But when I think of new, exciting Witcher content, it's very exciting, first of all, that we're getting this this totally awesome hardback illustrated edition of the uh, first book in the series. Uh, I'm very excited to pick that up. And the teaser trailer of the new season on of the Netflix series has me super psyched. Now, the extra uh, downloadable content uh, for the next-gen edition of The Witcher 3, on the other hand, leaves me pretty cold because, A, who's going to be able to play it considering the shortage of video game consoles and the fact that nobody actually ever can get a hold of a PS5 or Xbox Series X or S. But on top of that, that's going to be most likely another full price reissue of an old game with just some rudimentary extra content, which uh, I'm, I'm getting pretty tired of as far as uh, what the uh, two uh, main competitors in the console wars, uh, Sony and uh, Microsoft, have been doing. So I'm uh, less excited about the video game stuff. But now the new Netflix season and uh, this new beautifully illustrated edition of the novel i'm all there for yeah so i recently got an incredible deal on comiXology for the digital omnibus of the uh of the witcher comics and the art in there is super like dave i think you'll i think you'll love the the comics especially as a horror fan it's super spooky um you know going through those bogs it's super atmospheric so i'm i think I think I'm going to go against the grain here. I'm super excited about season two. The anime looks cool. I think I'm most excited about that illustrated edition of The Last Wish. Um, I recently wrapped up reading that and I loved it so much. So I'm super excited to get my hands on that one. I'm actually very curious about about the comic book uh, omnibus that you read. Do you know, is that uh, adaptation of uh, pre-existing stories or is this original content in the Witcher universe? Um, I'm not exactly certain. I'm not very far into it. Um, probably like the first arc. It feels very much kind of like the um, where the last wish, you know, was very much short stories. Uh, mm-hmm. It feels kind of like just almost like uh, like the short stories of Sherlock Holmes, where it's just kind of like tales that happen in this universe. You know, when you have this expansive history of a character, there's going to be stuff that you can always kind of go back to. So that's what it kind of feels like, at least what I've gotten into so far. It doesn't it doesn't jump out as anything that I've seen in The Last Wish or the second book in the series so far or season one of of The Witcher. But yeah, I totally echo your sentiments on the game. I just wrapped up The Wild Hunt, both of those DLCs. And not only can I not get my hands on a, a Series S or X, I'm not going to shell out another 60 bucks, you know, when I've already beaten all the game except for, what, three or four missions? I, I think I'm good on that. Uh, talk to me when you got The Witcher 4 in the works. Now, there you go. That's That's something I can get behind. All right, Dave, what is on the news desk for you this week? Yeah, so I'm actually really excited about this uh, little bit of news. Uh, I have been stark raving mad on this podcast for weeks now about Boom Studios' Something is Killing the Children, a a horror comic that I think is probably one of the best uh, quote-unquote indie comics on the market right now. And I absolutely adore it. Um, It wrapped up its first major arc a couple months back and then has started sort of a flashback arc now where you get to uh, sort of the origin story of the main character and it still is hitting all the right notes. So The Hollywood Reporter is reporting, shockingly enough, uh, that 
uh, Trevor Macy and Mike Flanagan, the people behind Intrepid Pictures, uh, are preparing to uh, work on an adaptation of Something is Killing the Children for Netflix. Now, if those names are familiar, they should be. Uh, they are the people behind the very excellent uh, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, as well as uh, the Stephen King adaptation of uh, Dr. Sleep and Gerald's Game. Now, Dr. Sleep was very good. Gerald's Game I've not checked out yet. And at the very least, the first season of The Haunting of Hill House was just absolute beautiful, spooky goodness. So seeing people who have a love of the horror genre tackling something is killing the children and trying to bring it to the screen has me very, very, very excited. Uh, this is a property that I think needs to be much more in the mainstream. It's in within the comic book industry, a huge hit, obviously. But I really think that uh, the general audience needs to be drawn into this sucker. It is just such a good story. And I cannot wait to see how they adapt this unique visual style of the series. So Chris, I'm psyched. Something is killing the children, maybe coming uh, to Netflix as a series in the next few years. Yeah, and, and we've been on this one for quite some time. I haven't checked it out yet, but I, I just have to say, once again, Boom Studios is absolutely killing it, pun intended, when it comes to like great content coming out of that The, the, the children? That they're, they're killing the children? <laughs> but I, I'm telling you, man, like between this book, between um, Eve that I absolutely adore and have nerd commended before by Victor Laval, Tom Taylor's got a book, uh, I think it's like Seven Secrets or something that I'm dying to get my hands on. Um, you know, Grant Morrison's got Proctor Valley Road that I'm I've still got a my to read pile. I have so much, like I just give myself so much homework when it comes to reading comics. Uh, I, I, there's just so much stuff from boom studios that I am just so excited to dive into. Yeah. Yeah. And something is killing the children for me is right there at the top of the pile. So, you know, just really, really excited for this adaptation. Now, if only we can finally, you know, see the adaptation of why the last man, that'd be nice. I've been waiting for that since before Jesus was born. I think that's coming really soon. I want to say it's like, next month or something like that well i tell you what that that might stand as my absolutely all-time favorite series so I, I cannot wait to see what they did with that as an adaptation as well looks like september 13th in a quick google search is what i'm seeing well not too much longer then all righty folks that's what we got for nerd news for you stick around after a quick break we'll be back with the big kahuna the big talk we're going to try to fix the rise of skywalker good luck to us chris <laughs> Cheers. And we are back, ladies and gentle nerds. Here it is the ever popular, all time favorite. That's right, it's time for the big talk. Let's go ahead and dive in to Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, the final movie in the sequel trilogy, directed by J.J. Abrams, featuring, of course, all the returning characters from previous movies, including some we really didn't need. <coughs> Palpatine. Um, and, of course, as always, we are going to dive in and try to fix this monstrosity. Uh, both Chris and I have selected three 
big fixes that we think would make the movie a lot better, as well as several minor fixes in the lightning round at the end. We'll be taking turns, sharing our problems with the movie and how we think the movie could have been improved. Chris, are you ready? I think I am. Then let's dive on in with your very first fix for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. It is my it is the most troubling thing about well one of at least the most troubling things about this entire uh, sequel trilogy um Ray's family retcon um it is deeply troubling to me I thought um one of the reasons that the last jedi stands alone for me um as one of my favorite movies of all time is the absolutely beautiful idea that anybody can come from any type of background and and be this prodigious character with this immense amount of power and it doesn't matter who your parents were who your grandparents were and that was just absolutely they put the kibosh on that for whatever reason and i feel this is this is a a larger symptom of a greater disease that is this film of taking two to two and a half hours and basically just washing away everything that happened in the previous entry. You know, no matter how you feel about The Last Jedi, I think a lot of people would appreciate the fact that we're opening up this universe, this galaxy far, far away to more than just one or two families. And it is it is absolutely mind-boggling to me that you would limit yourself you're shooting yourself in the foot storytelling wise when you are limiting yourself to this just family feud, this Hatfields and McCoys in space. And it's only the Palpatines and Skywalkers that really measure up to anything. And it all has to be this like it, it, it makes the galaxy seem so small. And and I know that that is par for the course when it comes to Star Wars as, as a franchise, as an IP we always go back to Tatooine. We have like five or six planets that we can name off the top of our head that we always just go back to, but it makes the world seem so small and it's a self-inflicted wound and I don't understand it, why it has to be this way. I, I am just absolutely flabbergasted as to why it has to be this way. Um, so I would absolutely just wipe away the whole Ray is a Palpatine thing and just let her be the child of Junkers. Like, because the fact that she can rise from that coming from a, a, a quote unquote nobody to being one of the most powerful beings in this entire universe is just a beautiful thing. It's rags to riches. It's a tried and true literary storytelling thing. Like it works. It, it, it has proven itself time and again. Why are you limiting yourself with this? And it is one of the most deeply disturbing things about any Star Wars movie that I've ever watched. Yeah, I think that's par uh, of the course for J.J. Abrams here, who very much... The other movie feels rushed. I think that's the first thing I, we need to observe. The movie is very much rushed, even though it's a very long movie at two and a half hours. And it really feels exactly as you said, like at least half of this movie is backpedaling on The Last Jedi, and then the other half is trying to tell, you know, the remainder of the story. So this is really two movies crammed into one, is what we're getting here. We're getting basically J.J. Abrams' uh, version of The Last Jedi and J.J. Abrams' version of The Rise of Skywalker smooshed into one, and the movie doesn't really have any room to breathe in a lot of ways because of that. Now, it seems to me 
that J.J. Abrams was in The Force Awakens very much trying to plant some kind of seed about Rey. And it's no, not a surprise that the fan base was speculating, is she a Skywalker? Maybe she's a Kenobi. Uh, and th- that speculation was fun and all. Uh, I would have liked some kind of interesting reveal about her background beyond uh, your parents were just a bunch of nobody junkers. But at the same time, I don't think her being a Skywalker, her being a Kenobi, and even her being a Palpatine was the right way to go. I'll agree with you on this. Once it was established in The Last Jedi that she came basically from nothing, it should not have been backpedaled in this movie. And Abram's obsession with this sort of twistiness, uh, you really notice it in this movie in particular, uh, everything has to be a twist. Um, it, it's, it's almost M. Night Shyamalan levels at this point. Uh, yeah. Everything is kind of, a, kind of has to be a twist. The thing that didn't need a twist was Ray's background. It, it just, it goes too far back on the, um, on the last Jedi. Now, if, if we wipe, you know, that whole establishment of the last Jedi out, then, you know, it opens up some interesting possibilities of who, who her parents could have been. Sure. Um, but as soon as that was established in The Last Jedi, backpedaling here was simply a mistake. It should have stood as is in this movie. That's the fix. I, I totally agree with that. You know, it, it reminds me, and in, in, and by no means do I want to come across as just a negative of this creator's work, but I, this feels like the Dan Slot of, of, you know, kind of filmmakers. I, I get the same vibes when I read Dan Slot's Spider-Man or Dan Slot's Fantastic Four he's making retcons and making twists and changes. Like you said, for, for what reason? I think for, for 10 years on amazing Spider-Man, we had so much kind of sleight of hand in a character just to keep him in this Peter Pan stage of development, just to keep him Oh, editorial says he can't be married. So we're just going to put him in this relationship, but then he's going to be back out of that. And then, for what? And now you have him taking away Franklin Richards' mutant identity just because it, it seems, at least from the outside looking in, he doesn't want to play ball with the X office and the editorial. So just kind of making these retcons and changes just for the the sake of changing up things, just to shake it up, it's kind of like a snake eating its own tail. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, ultimately, in in The Rise of Skywalker, there was way too many fake-outs and way too many twists that seemed to be trying to sort of disguise that that the movie is just not very well thought out, ultimately. All right, Dave, I'm really interested to dig into your first big fix because it would have been one of mine as well. I really think that Palpatine has absolutely, positively no business being in this movie. None. None. Uh, I, the dude's story is done, um, and by by bringing him back, and and admittedly being incredibly vague about bringing him back, like you know, it's it's sort of implied he's a clone in, of, of some sort, but it's not ever really spelled out. By bringing him back, you do something uh, in, incredibly bad, and that is that you are messing with the original trilogy. Not not stop messing with my original trilogy. Darth Vader turned to the light side and eliminated the Emperor, and that was his redemption. And so you are wiping away 
the fall and return to the light side of Anakin Skywalker for a cheap return of, of a character that in this movie, let's be honest, is so over the top and and so far removed from from that 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 cunning portrayal uh, that we saw even in the prequels to a certain extent of Palpatine like this is just a cackling madman like you know cloning gone bad or something um and i understand exactly what happened here uh, it, it, again it's it's the apology tour for the last jedi ryan johnson broke my toy snoke so now i need a snoke substitute well, I'll just bring Palpatine back to fill that that void. Because very clearly, you need to have an external, uh, higher-up enemy than Kylo Ren if you want him to turn back to the light side. There's got to be another enemy, you know, uh, above him at that point. So, hey, I don't have Snoke anymore. I'm just going to go ahead and bring back Palpatine. But by doing so, I'm going to whip out a $10 word. You besmirch Return of the Jedi. Stop besmirching Return of the Jedi. That moment of, of Vader turning back to the light side is crucial to the entirety of the story. And by then saying, well, what he did didn't matter, it's just as bad as the Force Awakens saying, well, the, the victory over the Empire didn't matter because a few years later we get Empire 2.0, only we go ahead and we call him the First Order. Yeah, and, 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 and kind of... It, an interesting reaction that you had to my point. I'll, I'll do the exact same thing here just to play devil's advocate. If you wanted to do that, you sure as hell better do a good job out of it, but they did a really crappy job doing it here. If you're going to reintroduce Palpatine as the big bad, you're going to have to do a lot to win people over by it. And they did absolutely nothing in that regard. I mean, like we talk about this in comics, there's so much happening off panel off page Everything happens off screen here. He's just here. He, he just shows up. There's no explanation for why he's here again. He turns into, he goes from, I, you know, Ian McDermott's portrayal, his performance was between him and Ewan McGregor. They carried the prequels like their chiropractor bills had to be through the roof because they carried that franchise. Those are that, that, that trilogy of the prequels. He went from being this scene-chewing, like, actor savant into this mustache-twirling silent film villain. Like, what was this? And it, none of it was believable. It came completely out of nowhere. If What works about the Emperor as the big bad, both in the prequels and the original trilogy, is you have seeds planted all the way throughout and each film, even if it is 30 seconds of screen time, you have something that plants a seed which will sprout into a full-fledged bouquet of chaos by the time we get to the third film. You have absolutely nothing here. You just show up and here he is. No explanation, no reasoning, and it absolutely is just utter chaos. Absolutely. And I will also say this, because I know somebody on social media is going to, uh, how do the kids say, come at me uh, about this? Yes, I'm a huge fan of the Expanded Universe. And yes, I am aware they brought Palpatine back in the Expanded Universe 2 in a comic book series. And, that kid might be me. Yeah. And I'm going to be, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe that. 
And I'm going to be completely honest. That was probably one of my least favorite parts of the expanded universe as well. The dude needs to stay dead. His story is over. Move on. Stop basking in nostalgia and tell a good story. That's all I'm asking for. Well, and this goes into one of my lightning round points is everything that is. I'm just going to save it for later, but absolutely. I'm just going to save it for later because I have much more to say on this, but absolutely. Let's go ahead then instead, Chris, and dive into your second big fix for the rise of Skywalker. I think it, the most I think the most uncomfortable thing about when you take a look back now, we've visited all three of these films, and the thing that makes me most uncomfortable is and and John Boyega said as much when he he spoke his truth after all three films were done and he cashed in his last check from Disney and he walked away from Lucasfilm more often, more than likely to never return. There are only two characters in this entire sequel trilogy that had any kind of nuance that had any, that were given any kind of depth of character, any true development. And it is really just uncomfortable that, Ray and Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo were the only ones like it's their world and everybody else is just shrubbery and scenery around it. Like John Boyega, it, it, it hurts my heart how talented of an actor he is and how completely wasted he was. It, it literally gives me emotional pain. Oscar Isaac is an absolutely tour de force as an actor. I mean, I can't, I can't be excited enough about what he's going to do with Moon Knight. Ex Machina was like one of the coolest sci-fi films of all time. So the dude is like out of his mind talented and they are reduced to nothing but scenery for these two characters that are put up on a pedestal. I mean, like, and this move, this movie in particular is, is like, like underlining that with a, permanent marker and a highlighter this is just ray and kylo's story and everything else is just playing second fiddle to that that's why palpatine falls flat and nobody gives a about him in this movie is because this is just oh we got to turn ben back and this is just redemption story of this horrible war criminal and we've got to turn him back to the light side and ray is going through her struggle and for, for for what it's worth they did a great job with those two characters it's just unfair and unjust in my mind that they're the only ones that have any true depth and have any kind of true kind of traction throughout these three films i don't necessarily think that uh, ben solo has particular traction in this movie um I'll agree with you that there's just not enough to do for everybody, particularly beyond, you know, physically doing something like actually having an, a character arc and interesting things happening to them. There's a there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, that's left uh, on the on the floor here. Really, you know, what what was the point of half of the stuff happening in this movie with some of the these characters? Um, but I don't think this movie necessarily served um Ben Solo well either like his whole quote-unquote redemption what was a very very weird moment to me like how exactly did the death of his mother snap him out of it how did he suddenly just like start hallucinating Han Solo I mean we know it's not a force <laughs> ghost Han was not exactly uh, a Jedi so you know my, my my question here is like 
what, what was the internal logic of all of, of that whole moment? And then once again, they try to basically pull a Vader, which is a free of uh, freedom from consequence. He's done yeah. horrible things. If you're going to try to do a story where Ben Solo goes to the dark side, does horrible things, and then finds the light again, that's that's fine. But instead of trying to repeat the whole Vader thing, I, I turn good and then I sacrifice myself. He should have turned like in the at the end of The Last Jedi. And then you have a movie to actually explore the consequences of this. He's going to have to face up with what he did. Dude killed his dad and one of the most beloved characters in the Star Wars franchise. How do you come back from something like that? Now, there's some interesting writing to be done. There's some interesting character acting to be done. What we got instead is is pretty much useless. And don't even get me started on Finn. Holy smokes, dude. Like, he is for, like, 90% of the movie trying to tell Ray something. And then he never tells her anything. We yeah. never found out what he was trying to say. Was he trying to say, I love you? Was he trying to say, I think I'm Force-sensitive? Was he trying to say, oops, I stubbed my toe? You know, I want to know. Why are you teasing something that you're yeah. not willing to answer? It's nonsense. So yeah, Chris, I'm exactly with you. I, I, I would say that Ben is probably not served all that well either. It's a very good uh, story for Ray overall. But all the other characters in my book get a short shift here. No, I don't want to misrepresent like my viewpoints. I don't think it's a good job. I think Ray is served the best. She's like like they do the best job telling her story. I'm just I'm just saying like as as a matter of like screen time and substance of screen time, uh, they give the most to those two characters. That's true. Yes. The other ones are absolutely left in the dust. That's my big gripe. I totally agree with that. All right, Dave. What is fix big fix number two for you? You know, the, the, the easiest fix is to learn a different way of telling a story because apparently J.J. Abrams is obsessed with MacGuffins. The idea of there's an object that you have to acquire and everybody's after it and hilarity ensues. He He's not really making a, a Star Wars movie at this point so much as he's making an Indiana Jones movie. I mean, Indiana Jones movies always are MacGuffin focused. That is the nature of the story. You know, you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have those those stones in Temple of Doom, and then you have, of course, the Holy Grail uh, in, in the last one of those, because I don't acknowledge part four. I just don't. It's, it doesn't exist. Nope. And, and this fifth one, this fifth one, just stop production now. Just stop it. I don't want it. I don't think, I don't think any true fan really does, Chris. <laughs> but, but so... It's just like every time Abrams tells a story, he has to have a, a MacGuffin. It's a shortcut for him to tell a story in the Star Wars universe. Well, I'll just throw some object in there that uh, that's everybody wants, and then you know the action kind of writes itself, rather than you know taking a little time and really constructing an interesting story. The Force Awakens had the same thing going on with uh, you know the map in in BB-8. Uh, it's just like, hey, there's something everybody wants. Let's just see everybody chasing their tails trying to get it. And, and that's a problem. You know, say what you will about The Last Jedi. I certainly have my problems with it. But the one thing it doesn't do is tell a MacGuffin-based story. There isn't one single object that is basically running the entire story for every single character. And yet, uh, when, when Abrams returned for this movie, he 
basically return to that exact same trick again. Let's play the MacGuffin game. And I'm just very tired of that kind of storytelling in Star Wars. You know, for some stuff, it works. Like Indiana Jones, for example. There has to be an object that he's pursuing. That's kind of the nature of, you know, that whole setup. But in Star Wars, I I don't quite understand that. The original movie had sort of a MacGuffin, you know, with the with the Death Star plans in R2-D2. But then Empire didn't have a MacGuffin. Return of the Jedi didn't have a MacGuffin. I would argue that none of the prequels were MacGuffin-based. So why are we so hung up on this fetch quest? So in, in my book, like structurally, this whole movie would have to be rewritten to be fixed. The, the, the motivation, what people are after, all of that would have to be reconstructed because they're just taking a shortcut with this one object again. And it is so frustrating to watch, Chris. Yeah, um, I, I saw something on uh, social media that I'm going to completely uh, steal here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to edit it for our language content. But uh, same crap, different butthole. It's the same stuff. It's literally the same thing. Like this feels and and I'm playing Skyrim right now and I absolutely love it. It's super open world. It's the probably one of the most expansive video games I've ever played. But there are some of these side missions. Oh, my God. Go here uh, to this location on the map. Pick up a book. Bring it back to this person, this person at this location on the map. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to fire up a podcast while I'm playing because I'm going to get the XP. I'm going to get the gold. I'm going to level up. But there's literally no dialogue, nothing. And that's when you make that the main storyline in your movie, not once, but twice in two films. Honey, you got problems. It It is so, so blasé. And like... It, it, I had a really strange experience watching this movie again. And we talked about this, I think on the last episode when we were teasing this um, as much as you can tease this movie. Um, you know, I I've only seen it once and I wasn't looking forward to it, but then like I hit play and like the first 30 minutes of this movie, I was like, this is, this is really fun. Like I'm really enjoying this. Did I really dislike this movie that much? And then that 30 minute mark hits and it's like this invisible wall just falls down and then it turns into this boring ass side quest. Yeah, you know, that's actually why I keep recommending Horizon Zero Dawn to anybody who will listen, because the one thing in that game is that there are no uh, useless side quests. Each side quest is unique and thrilling and adds something to the mythology. So uh, if you've got... That Skyrim blues, man. Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn does not have that problem. But yeah, I, I, it's exactly the problem. I, uh, I felt is... the same thing with uh, the Outer Worlds. Everything meant something. And like I said, when I when I nerd commended it, like literally the epilogue of that game is you did this, you you chose to do this side mission and this is how it benefited the story. So I, I'm totally right there with you. Yeah, so that that is exactly the problem that we're seeing here. We're we're seeing what feels like an extended side mission, uh, and we're not getting the meat and potatoes of the story. All right, Chris, what is your uh, next big point on how we can fix the rise of Skywalker? Okay, so we touched on it before about how so much of this film, the vast majority of it, is an apology or a retcon or a snubbing of what happened in The Last Jedi. And um, right up there with the, um, you know, the, the erasure of, uh, of Ray's parentage, the most egregious, one of the most egregious is the absolute erasure of Rose Tico. 
you know, we we had our we had our nitpicks of the whole, um, you know, side quest, if you will, to use that terminology again of of Canto Bite and you know the the master locksmith or whatever code breaker. Um, but one of even even in that kind of mucky situation, I thought Rose as a character was refreshing and honest and new and authentic. And they completely sidelined her into this movie uh, with like three lines. They put her back at base with Leia and maybe gave her three lines. And they were just like, look out, Finn. And like the most reducted story. And it, it, it is absolutely infuriating. And to cater to the worst type of fans, of the people who came at, Kelly Marie Tran with absolute racist, sexist, misogynistic hate speech, and you give them what they want, you reward those types of individuals. Now, maybe that's not your thinking behind it, but God, the optics on it from the outside looking in, that's exactly what it looks like. It was an absolute travesty. And you you cannot convince me that you could not give uh, Rose Tico more to do in that film. Holy moly. But the complete erasure and the sidelining of Rose it really just makes me super uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, I really don't have too much to add to that point, except for uh, I 100% agree. Uh, again, the idea that this movie is some kind of apology tour for The Last Jedi is incredibly um, valid and, and, and regrettable at the same time. Uh, if you didn't like the direction that that character went in The Last Jedi, then you can do something unheard of in the annals of cinema. You can let the character grow and progress and change through the course of the story. Imagine if Rose had an actual storyline in this movie and learned something new and because of that changed into a different, maybe even more interesting person. It's called character development. We should try that sometime in Star Wars. Yeah, I mean... It... <laughs> And I don't mean to speak ill of of you know Carrie Fisher, but they literally sidelined her with a character who they were having to jump through hoops just to develop anything for her because of her unfortunate passing. That's the treatment that they gave her. That's that's crazy to me. I totally agree with that. All right, uh, Dave, um, your your last big fix. Oh man, it is very meme worthy. At least it gave us that. Look, you know, I, I want to go ahead and talk a little bit about Ray taking the Skywalker name at the end of uh, The Rise of Skywalker. And I want to be very, very clear before I get into this. I think the notion that family goes beyond genetics and beyond blood is a beautiful thing. I think the notion of adoption is a wonderful and beautiful thing. And I do believe that families come together in, in so many different ways um, that go beyond, you know, sharing some DNA. And I think that's really how it should be. Uh, and that's always how my family has been. Uh, my family, uh, as I was growing up, always forged extremely strong bonds with people and accepted them into the family, whether, you know, they were related to us or not. And that, uh, that always meant a great deal to me. So when I say that I have a problem with Ray taking the Skywalker name, I am not talking about um, having a problem with the notion of Ray becoming a Skywalker. I have a problem with the execution of how Ray became a Skywalker. 
what we have here is a very strange situation. So first, Ray goes to train with Luke and spends however long with him. But their relationship is very contentious. And I would argue probably not particularly close. And then she continues her training with Leia, who, while being related to Luke, being, you know, Luke's sister, never apparently took the Skywalker name. So she was still going in the sequel trilogy by General Leia Organa. So if you are postulating then that she was particularly close with Leia, which again, they could not show us because of uh, Carrie Fisher's untimely passing. Why is she taking the Skywalker name? And if you wanted her to take the Skywalker name because she felt uh, uh, feelings like uh, Luke was almost a father figure to her, then why did you not show us that kind of relationship previously? Or better yet, even within this movie, because ultimately there was no reason that Luke could have not been a little bit more in this movie and forged some kind of bond. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the lightning round. Um, but given Carrie Fisher's passing, leaning a little bit on Luke's force ghost uh, could have been a, an interesting way to go. But what we what we end up with is a situation where she takes the Skywalker name in a, a scene that feels completely arbitrary and tacked on and in all honesty, it feels a little bit dishonest because we never saw her, you know, develop this close relationship with Luke. And we never got to see her develop a really close relationship with Leia, who doesn't even go by Skywalker. I'm shocked she wouldn't feel like she wanted to take on the solo name since she's much closer with the solos in, in this trilogy. She you know, looks up to Han Solo and, and is horribly mad when he dies. She develops a very strange relationship with, with Ben Solo. She's being you know trained as a Jedi by Leia Organa, who is you know uh, the mother of Ben Solo. Like she, Shouldn't she, by all rights, be more connected to the solos? It's just such a strange move within the context of the trilogy. And it goes back to this thing we've talked about many times, which is planning. If you wanted Rey to become a Skywalker in the end, to be accepted into this family and to choose to take that name on, that's a great idea. She comes from nothing because that Palpatine thing is silly. She comes from nothing and is accepted into this family and, and takes the name for herself and represents the best of that family moving forward as the last one standing. That's a great character arc, but you didn't show us that character arc. You just threw a scene at the end of the movie where she arbitrarily takes the name. And that is, I think, why some fans feel very negative towards that scene. It, it's not earned in the course of this movie or over the course of the trilogy. And that is what needs to be fixed by showing a different kind of relationship and bond with Luke. And, and ultimately, because he's the guy running around with the Skywalker name and ultimately having her have those, those uh, feelings of him being a father figure. And then when, you know, he's gone, she decides to take the name that makes more sense in the course of this trilogy. What do you think, Chris? Yeah. So, just at the onset, I wholeheartedly agree with your sentiments that you said at the beginning of, of your point. You know, I myself, um, and I've detailed this before on this show, am the the father of a blended family, and we don't all have the same surname. 
I was raised by a father who had a different surname than I did. So there, I mean, like, so I totally get what they're going for here. The reason that this particular scene, this particular choice left a bad taste in my mouth. So I'm, I'm all for it. So let's say like, like, like you said, you want to go with Ray becoming a Skywalker and being adopted, so to speak, into that family. Sure. But I'm going to need more evidence than this. And the fact that it, the, the reason that it left a bad taste in my mouth is because of everything that I just previously laid out. It is literally a throwaway line. It's the last line she looks over at the force ghosts of Luke and Leia. They just nod and she says, okay, I guess that's the assent that I need, the approval that I need to just take on this surname. And then that's the last line of the movie. And then, you know, we go back for the nostalgia bait with the the two, the double sunset on Tatooine. Like it, it just feels so underwhelming. And I like, like you said, I totally agree. If you want to go with that storyline, you want to go with that character development, all the more, I'm absolutely 100% behind it. Just don't, just the execution in this, and like you said, the poor planning, it, it feels a little bit disingenuous because you didn't show any of that development. It, it has no meaning. And I know that they... It, it was interesting the way that they laid that out on the, the first planet that they went to with the festival. I'm forgetting the name of that planet, but, and the little girl asked her, what's her family name? And she said, I don't have one. And also, you know, here's another way you could have gone with this. How many people throughout human history have a surname that they are not proud of, that they have a family legacy that is attached to that surname and they have to deal with that. So I get that, but you it's just you fumbled it in every way possible. So it's the execution that's the problem that leaves a bad taste in my mouth, at least. Can I also just point out that her burying that lightsaber on Tatooine was like one of the most disrespectful things she could have possibly done? Anakin, we know, hated sand. Anakin in the sand! In the sand! <laughs> and, and Luke wasn't a big fan of Tatooine himself and wanted to get off of it as fast as possible, then had to come back there and almost get killed by a rancor in J- Jabba's palace. <laughs> like, there are no positive memories for Skywalkers on that darn planet. Can we just maybe not bury the lightsaber on the last place these people ever wanted to go to? From Anakin's part, you know... I was literally enslaved there. Why would I want that back? Yeah, it's it's a very very odd moment. But again, it's that nostalgia bait. Got to go back to uh, got to go back to Tatooine. All right, Chris, I think we are ready for the lightning round. Throw me your first lightning round improvement. Dave, one of my favorite movies of all time is uh, Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock: The Proposal, and one of my favorite lines from said movie is. Ryan Reynolds' character says, the woman's as subtle as a gun. (laughs) And (laughs) I immediately thought of that line when you have General Hux literally just saying, I'm the spy. That line was as subtle as a gun. Like, come on. Seriously, I mean, like, I don't even know. Like, so some kind of anything beyond just, I'm the spy. Yeah, you know, it's funny, too, because that whole idea that Hux hates uh, Kylo Ren so much that he would, like, betray the First Order is actually a really, really interesting idea. It's just another interesting character completely wasted. I would have loved to see more of, of that whole situation. 
Here's here's an interesting improvisation right here. Here's a fix. We know that they hated each other. That was very clear throughout all three films. Why not make him rise to be the big bad instead of Palpatine? And it's that enmity, that hatred between the two of them that's the cause of it. I would love that. Oh, Hux ascends. Yeah, that would have been a very, very interesting situation. And we talked about this in The Last Jedi. Dom Hong Gleason is absolutely brilliant in that role, but they reduced him, even in The Last Jedi, I'll admit, they reduced him to this buffoonery, even though it made me laugh when he was get tossing around like a ragdoll. That was fun to watch. But it was even more so here. Like, he's just completely inept. So I think the dude's got the chops. You know, he comes from his blood. His dad, Brendan, is incredibly talented as well. I, I, would, I would love for him to have been the big bad. I agree with that. That's actually a really good fix. All right, Dave, uh, <laughs> your first lightning round fix made me guffaw and laughter. Yeah, so I'm just going to say, uh, where the hell did this fleet and all the people manning the ships come from? <laughs> that is a massive fleet, people. And there's like, you know, Star Destroyer level stuff. And there's like thousands of people on a Star Destroyer or something. How many hundreds of thousands of people are on these ships? And who built them? And how long has this been going on? And how does nobody notice this crap? The amount of resources alone it would take to build that many ships. Like... There's some really stupid people in this galaxy. Like, <laughs> holy smokes. Wouldn't it have been much more fun if all of those ships that he had were like old ships from like the prequel trilogy era? And uh, instead of having all these, you know, human beings manning them, because, you know, we're supposed to believe the First Order is not that big, have like a whole bunch of like droids on there, like droidicas and all those. And he's like basically (laughs) using the Trade Federation's old equipment and stuff to try to, you know, cobble together a a huge fleet. So he has this, you know, massive attack power. Now, I would believe that over, oh, yeah, you know, not only... Do I have all these pristine new ships that I've built right under your nose? But I also have hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people manning them, and we're ready to take over. It's just, uh, it, it stretches credulity just a little bit, Chris. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm with you there. As long as we can leave the B1s out of the equation. If I hear an effing Roger Roger again, I might throw something. Roger Roger. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chris, what's your next uh, lightning round fix? All right, here's the nostalgia bait for you. Uh, you remember that song from the 90s, Closing Time? Oh, yes, I do. Okay, so after the first 30 minutes that I detailed was incredibly enjoyable at the, the film, the rest of the movie felt like Closing Time. Like, it was just like, can we wrap this up? But it was two hours of, can we wrap this up? It was just like, boom, 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 pushing all the chips into the center of the table so we could cash out and leave. It just took a hell of a long time to get there. It also feels oddly like no matter how fat, no matter how long the movie is, everything felt rushed. Nothing had room to breathe. No, no moment had had any kind of room to breathe, and nothing of of substance had room to breathe. It's very odd that in the, on the one hand it seems incredibly boring, and in the other hand it's just so much happening, but it's all meaningless. So yeah, that they they definitely would need to fix that, Chris. All right, Dave, what is uh, next up in the lightning round for you? You kind of touched on this one earlier. Yeah, I mentioned this a little earlier already, but you know, the idea of Ben turning to the to the light side is an interesting one, uh, but it should have happened much sooner. As I mentioned earlier, probably by you know the end of The Last Jedi, there should have been some kind of turn, um, just because then he has to face up to the consequences and it becomes a different story than what happened to Darth Vader. I turn... I die, and I, I'm free from all the consequences of my evil doery 
Yeah. Uh, as much as I'm a fan of Harrison Ford and I, I enjoyed that scene, you know, explain it however you want to just emo boy in the rain, chucking a lightsaber and another temper tantrum just kind of fell flat for me. And now he's redeemed. Emo boy. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're pretty close actually there, Chris. All right. But what else you got uh, for our lightning round fixes? Uh, next up is Deus Ex Force Ghost. Um, Force Ghost can apparently do anything now. Uh, you know, in the original trilogy and uh, the prequels, they just stand fireside for a little chat or, you know, just tell you, you know, little inspirational quotes as you're about to blow up the Death Star. But now they're, you know, lifting X-Wings finally after after 30 years of, you know, failing to do so. Yeah, so Force Ghost being able to do anything and everything was, you know, just mind-blowing here. Yeah, Force Ghost should not be able to affect the physical world. Appearing and, and talking to people is one thing. But, you know, when we got the whole Yoda throwing lightning in The Last Jedi and uh, what, what Luke does in this one, uh, it begs the question, why didn't Obi-Wan, after he died, just kind of show up and kill Vader? I mean, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not like Vader could kill him again. So like, hey, now I'm a Force Ghost, I'm invincible, but I still have these powers, so I'm just going to go ahead and punk you. How about that? You dead, Vader. Like... <laughs> What's the point of anything if if the dead can just come back and do the job for you? That completely uh, belittles the struggle of the living characters in these stories. Yeah, it's absolutely silly. I totally agree with that. That should not be a thing. So your next point in the lightning round makes me think of a psych line that didn't quite make it in the Last Jedi episode. Yeah, you know, look... You cannot keep acting like somebody's going to die in order to give your story uh, a sense of stakes and then go back and say, just kidding, not actually dead. You did it with Chewbacca. You did it with C-3PO having to have his memory wiped. Oh, we're just kidding. Chewbacca's not dead. Oh, we're just kidding. We can restore C-3PO from a backup we did earlier. Like this constant faking out is just disingenuous. At some point, your audience is like, yeah, yeah, you're not going to kill anybody. You don't actually mean that there are no stakes and I'm bored now. Yeah, that was the turning point of the film for me. I really thought when when Ray blew up that transport and you know, supposedly killed Chewie. I was like, man, I'm here for this. Like we are going in a completely different direction for a change. You know, like it was, it was a, it was a welcome change from Luke who resisted the dark side pretty much at any and every entry in the original trilogy. And to have a character who really struggles with the dark side to a, a great degree like that, I thought would have been super compelling, but then nope, we get the rug pulled out from under us at every turn. And just as an addendum, I think we can be very clear that force lightning is not hereditary. So the idea that that Ray shoots lightning from her fingertips does not automatically make her a Palpatine, because we we know other characters have thrown force lightning around before. It seems it seems like the worst kind of foreshadowing that they could have come up with. If that's the case, then uh, Palpatine is Father Abraham. <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude you need to not talk like that okay that this movie already gave me disturbing imagery of palpatine reproducing okay i never wanted to think about that ever chris it's not a thought we should have to entertain okay it, it's a hot sheave summer oh that's wrong that's wrong okay that's the title for the episode hot sheave summer <laughs> I, th- I think you found it yep that's the one 
All right, Chris, what's your next uh, lightning round? I know, I know this seems like a broken record and a, and a constant point of, you know, frustration for us. But the lighting on Exegol, it was really difficult for me. Um, it, it's just so dark and maybe that's a way to hide some of the CGI or something. But it was really hard to determine a lot of what was going on on Exegol. I agree. Turn up that light a little bit. You know, it reminded me a little bit of Hulk fighting dogs. Um, if you remember <laughs> that very first big screen Hulk movie, oh, yeah. uh, oh, man, yeah. was that dark. You couldn't see squat in that movie. But uh, yeah, that that uh, obviously, you know, we need to be careful with lighting that you don't actually alienate your audience. I agree with that. All right, Dave, your next point is a little spicy. Yeah, you know, so they had to like go ahead and add that Poe has like a smuggling past. And I was like, look, can you not come up with any new characters? Do you literally have to try to turn Poe now into Han Solo? Like, does everybody have like a smuggling past that even is remotely Solo-like? This It's just like this mold of character that's just coming off an assembly line. Um, you know, I really liked some of the comic book work that was done with like Poe's background, you know, particularly his parents and how they were involved with the rebellion and the early goings of the New Republic and stuff. Um, that was all really interesting. I didn't quite understand why they then needed to go ahead with this movie and add this this whole smuggling thing. Uh, it, it seems redundant. Why do you need to try to make Poe more like Han Solo? It's just like, make him his own character. Yeah, and it's just frustrating. It's the same old, same old. And we, 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 and I'll get into this in my next point, but we just can't do anything new because that's scary and change is scary. Well, let, let's go ahead and get into it, Chris. What is your next lightning round point? So anything, and it, this is, you know, just a microcosm of the entire, you know, trilogy. Anything that is new and promising and cool is quickly snuffed out by the old and nostalgic. How many freaking slow motion pans do we need of the Millennium Falcon? I love that ship. I love it so much. But God, we get it. So, I mean, like any any new development by a character is is just completely subterfuge by just the old, the good old stuff. The only thing that I thought that was super old and nostalgia driven that was absolutely perfect in this film. And the only thing in this movie that I would not change a thing about is Billy D. Williams. He is perfect and he is inflappable. He's always perfect. You know, I'm just going to go ahead and say this. Given the strong connection between the Millennium Falcon and Han Solo, that ship has no business flying without Han Solo. Yep. Like, that that ship should have died when Han Solo died. That thing should have exploded, crashed, I don't care, flown into a sun. That thing has no business being around without Han Solo in that cockpit. It's just that simple. Well, well case in point, like... I'm telling you, I have, you know, black is my favorite color, but is something as simple as Poe's X-Wing being black was super cool and innovative, but like that takes, you know, second fiddle to the Millennium Falcon again. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's let's do something new, guys. All right, Dave, uh, what is your final point in the lightning round? Oh, the speculation. The speculation over and over again when we first heard of the Knights of Ren. Then when we had that very brief flashback in The Last Jedi to the day that uh, the Knights of Ren attacked the Jedi Academy. Oh, they must be formidable enemies. And then here they kind of show up and are like punked in five seconds by Ben Solo. Uh, is there anything more disappointing in this whole series of movies than the Knights of Ren who are hinted at, 
the name is even taken as the new last name from Ben Solo when he goes by Kylo Ren. And yet at the same time, they're completely a non-entity, useless, contribute absolutely nothing, and aren't even particularly cool. Could you have not done anything with the Knights of Ren in this trilogy? Nothing at all. That was a super, super disappointment. Yeah, and and you hinted at this before with the Poe comics, but from what I've heard, at least word of mouth, uh, the Kylo Ren comics have done a good job of telling that story. But we're back with the the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, the animated series. We're relying on secondary and tertiary materials to tell the story you should have been telling in the movies to begin with. That's exactly right. It's just so silly. Like, just tell a complete story within your trilogy and stop requiring me to, like, read 50 million comic books just to get a kind of a sense of what the story is about. And if we wouldn't have been baiting with the nostalgia, we could have told those stories. Imagine that. All right, Chris, final lightning round point. What have you got? So I really am ex- I was excited by even the promotional, you know, photography for the character of Janna. I think she her hair is gorgeous she looks like super compelling you know introducing these amazing horse-like creatures was fascinating but the clunky introduction of this character and like i said previously anything that is new and cool and exciting is completely sidelined like she barely gets any screen time and you know just from the outside looking in thinking back on all these three films it feels a little bit uncomfortable how they kind of just kind of pigeonholed her in here kind of as it seems to be as a wedge between uh finn and ray that in that unmistakable chemistry that they had in the force awakens and then you completely separate them from most of the film in the last jedi and then this is just ray and kylo ray and kylo sitting in a tree and then janna is like no this is going to be finn's kind of love interest because he's kind of getting too close to uh to ray and we have to put someone in here to kind of put a space in between them so we can continue only giving the storyline and the real kind of something to chew on to to ray and kylo because they're the ones that are put up on the pedestal so as much as i love that character and i want something of substance there i also want a spin-off with her and lando when they go find out who her parents are like that would be amazing but um, I think, you know, it's just another situation where non-white characters are very poorly served in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, and I think I also want to point out that whole ending scene between her and Lando was super awkward. Like it almost <laughs> it almost felt like he was hitting on her and it made yeah. it even... It made it even more awkward. I think there was an interview. Which would be in character for Billy D. Williams. (laughs) True. But I remember like in an interview or something uh, that somebody from behind the scenes of the movie, you know, reader uh, listeners might correct me. Uh, I might be wrong. But I seem to recall reading an interview at some point where somebody said that the implication of that scene was supposed to be that she may actually be Lando's daughter. I remember so, that. I remember and that. so that made that made that whole scene even creepier. But yeah, there's an interesting <laughs> character. Once again, it felt like it's just a character that was thrown in there and introduced without actually being served by the movie because hey, maybe we can have a novel or a video game or some kind of spin-off media about this character rather than doing something interesting within the movie itself. And here's here's the most interesting thing about the character to begin with that and and I will give this connection between between Finn and Janna that was worthwhile but once again never followed up on 
the fact that they were all stormtroopers too, and Finn was not the only one, but that storyline went absolutely nowhere because it, it didn't involve Rey and Kylo. Exactly right. And this whole this whole notion even of Finn leaving the stormtroopers and you know other people being inspired by him and all that, that that is you know a story of substance. And you're right, it didn't go anywhere. All right, ladies and gentle people, we did our best to try to fix the rise of Skywalker. Were we successful? Please let us know on social media. Uh, we would love to hear from you. And after a quick break, we will be right back with the final segment of our show, Nerd Commendation. Stick around. Ladies and gentle people, the time has come for probably the best segment. It's time for... That's right, Nerd Commendations, where we recommend new nerdy media or maybe some old nerdy media that we just now encountered and tell you all about why you too should enjoy it. Chris, what's good? So staying on brand with my nerd news report, I've been a tad obsessed uh, with the Witcher universe of late. After finishing up The Wild Hunt, I got uh, an incredible deal, as I mentioned previously, on the Dark Horse Comics digital omnibus. Uh, I'm rewatching season one on Netflix. Um, being the bookworm that I am, uh, I was dying to read all the novels, but I'm realizing more and more that digital is just the way to go for me. Uh, and getting my hands on all the novels isn't exactly a cheap mission to undertake. Thankfully, I remember that our school library allows students and staff to borrow ebooks uh, through the service called Overdrive. Um, that gave me many happy returns when the selection of reading landed within the parameters of what was deemed appropriate for middle age uh, school children like Harry Potter, things of that nature. However, let's just say that these books don't exactly meet that criteria, which are, is not appropriate for 12 to 14 year olds. Um, taking all of this into consideration, I visited the website of our local library, if for no other reason than to see if they had copies of the physical books. I was absolutely delighted to find that they also had 15 copies of the ebooks out for digital loans through an app called Libby, L-I-B-B-Y, which turns out to be powered by Overdrive, same uh, service. I'm now two books into the series thanks to this easy-to-use app which interacts directly with your reading app of choice. I personally go with Kindle, but it also connects to Apple Books and Google Books as well, I believe. Um, and I couldn't nerd-commend it anymore. If you get tied down and don't finish your selection in 14 days, you just go in and renew it like you would any other library book. Your spot will be saved. Um, like, let's, let's say, for example, um, you know, the second book of the franchise, I was about five chapters in, had to renew it. When I went back into the app, it was right where I left it. So if you're like me and you really want to tackle some of these popular book series that are getting the on-screen treatment, check the Libby app. Again, that's L-I-B-B-Y in cooperation with your local library. Just make sure that you have your free library card handy. Isn't there, is there actually anything better than the library? I mean, seriously, dude. My whole my whole reading habit got jump started by public libraries, and I'm so glad that uh, they found a way to move into the digital age and do this kind of stuff where you can you know check out ebooks and, and read them uh, on your devices. I absolutely love uh, Overdrive. I've used it uh, quite a bit, and uh, I'm a huge fan. So I totally second your nerd commendation, Chris. Uh, 
especially if you're cash strapped, never forget uh, your public library for comic books, for, for nonfiction, for novels, for short stories, for anything. Your local library is really there to serve you and to get you uh, hooked up with all the nerdy media you could ever want. And on top of all of that, it's free. Yeah, absolutely. And if for no other reason, if I have some free time, I just go there and, you know, just be in the presence of books and the smell of books is is always delightful to my nerdy book heart. Absolutely. I'm right there with you, Chris. All right, Dave, what is your nerd commendation for this week? So this might be an old one. I don't care. Uh, it's ev- everything old is new again. But uh, this is available now on Nintendo Switch. But I've been playing it on my good old 3DS, believe it or not. I whipped out my 3DS recently and uh, didn't realize I still had a copy of Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney Trilogy. Uh, this video game series is uh, a huge deal and I'd never really played it. And I finally decided to sit down and play the first of the uh, first trilogy. So this is a courtroom adventure series. It sold over 6.7 million copies worldwide. In the game, you become Phoenix Wright, uh, a attorney, and you have to uh, fight to save your innocent clients in a court of law. And dude, let me just tell you, the the mysteries are very interesting. The game mechanics are fascinating. And it is so weird and over the top and of course distinctively Japanese that uh, it, it doesn't really resemble any real court of law that I've ever heard of but at the same time the storytelling in it and the game mechanics are just so enrapturing so you have uh, each case lasts up to three days uh, and part of the day can be spent either in an investigation or in the courtroom so you're going around you're you know interviewing people you're gathering evidence and then Uh, you go to court and you try to uh, basically punch holes in the stories of various witnesses. You try to catch them in contradictions or where the evidence contradicts their statements in the hope of, you know, clearing your clients and finding the actual uh, perpetrator of the crime. And the game has a really, really fun sense of humor, bright, colorful graphics. It's so much fun to try to figure out who actually committed the crime and how you're going to prove it, pouring over all this different evidence, looking at, you know, the, the facts from like coroner reports and gathering, you know, shards of broken glass. And it's just, it's an absolute blast. I cannot believe I have been sleeping on the Phoenix Wright series for so long. I'm most definitely going to play through the uh, trilogy and hopefully I can pick up some of the later games as well. I know there's at least two more Phoenix Wright games. Uh, there's a couple of spin-off series and even a crossover with uh, the Professor Layton series, which is sort of a, uh, a mind puzzle riddle kind of game. Uh, so this is absolutely up my alley. It's very, very unique gameplay. And as I've said many times, I just like games sometimes that I can play and chill and it's not all shooty, shooty, bang, bang. And Phoenix Wright is exactly what I've been looking for. So this one comes highly recommended, Chris. Oh my God, man. I am so ready for this game. I knew nothing about this, but this is like a hodgepodge. This is like a potpourri a stew, if you will, of all the things that I love. Like, I read every single John Grisham novel when I was a kid. I was, I was, you know, criminal justice major till I decided to go into teaching. Um, 
you know, like courtroom dramas, Boston Legal, that was my jam. And then I, I see Capcom and that's, you know, another magic word for me. So I love this over the top kind of, you know, very Japanese, like, oh, it's, it's just so big and boisterous. And I, I just, I'm absolutely here for this. And, you know, I've been looking for something to draw me back to the Switch. I have been on a bit of a Switch hiatus. I played a bunch of the games, if not all the ones that I purchased in that initial onslaught and that newness factor of getting a Switch. So I've been playing a lot of Game Pass on Microsoft, uh, on my Xbox, um, and, and getting my, my bang for my buck out of there. But I think this I think this sucker will bring me back to the Switch. And I, I'm right there with you, man. I love to just sit back and chill with my Switch and, you know, games that make me use my brain and stay active. I love puzzle games. I love um, kind of like those hidden object type of games. Um, so I, I'm absolutely here for this. I'm going to have to go check this sucker out. Yeah, again, it's just a, a, an absolute blast. So it is available on the Switch. I think it's on the eShop right now for $29.99. But you are getting, you know, three complete games in that package uh, it's also available i want to say on on xbox and uh xbox one and playstation 4 i seem to recall that that you know came uh, the trilogy came to those systems to great fanfare but i've been playing it on on you know my 3ds and i have to say i'd forgotten what a good system the 3ds was uh that system really knocked it out of the park uh and totally deserves credit for you know keeping nintendo's handheld um division of float so to speak until the switch came along and kind of united all of that uh just an absolute uh absolute fantastic system chris yeah and i remember i remember my my younger sisters after i graduated and got out of the house my younger sisters got those and i would come back and visit and i would totally steal theirs and and play it a little bit and it was super fun so um yeah that those were good times man all right, ladies and gentle people, there you have it. Another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. If you enjoy what you just heard, please get on your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a rating and or review. We are available wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio. We are, of course, on Amazon Music. Uh, and, of course, on our very own website, nerdbyword.com. You can also hit us up on social media at NerdByWord on Instagram and Twitter. And if you're looking to get your hands on some great steals on comics, I have recently made the decision that physical comics are just not a feasible thing for me. So I am selling, uh, almost giving away some of these great deals on comics. So be sure to check out some, some great deals on our Instagram page at NerdByWord. Also be sure to check out our brother slash sister slash sibling podcast x of words where you'll see me and my other mutant friends furthering our radical mutant agenda so if you find yourself reading all the x books and krakoa and Araco and you don't know what to make of heads or tails of anything be sure to head over to x of words and check out that as well and as always stay well stay nerdy the Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.